So one thing about me that you may not know is that I recently joined the world of Lyft drivers. <laughs> Moving on up in my career. Uh, so I've joined all the Priuses, all the hybrids that are ferrying people back and forth from the airport, dropping all the Amazon people down in South Lake Union, and ferrying people back and forth between Ballard and Capitol Hill on Friday nights there. That's pretty much what my route is there. And you may wonder, why did I want to start driving for Lyft? I really like people leaving trash in my car. That's it. No, it's not. It actually kind of stems from about a year ago. About a year ago, my wife and I, Caitlin, moved from Denver to Seattle uh, because we really missed the city. We had, we had gone to school here, and we had fallen in love with it there. And as, we, we, as life had taken us away from the city, there was this draw always to come back here. There was a draw because this is a city that desperately needs to hear the gospel. And we just kept feeling this pull to come back and be a part of whatever God wanted to do here. And so we moved and we got involved here at Sedaris and we started serving. And after about a year or so, I realized, man, there's, there's more that I can be doing here. Because in my day-to-day -day life, I actually work a job where I have the blessing to be able to work from home. But on the flip side of that, what that means is there can go like three or four days where I haven't left the house, and the only person that I've seen is my wife, which I love my wife there. But in this desire to see the gospel move forward in this, kingdom, in this city, when I sit on my couch and send emails, there's not a lot of that happening. And so I started to kind of ask myself, like, what can I do maybe to, to change things up to get to know the city, to have communications with people, to engage, build relationships with people that may not know who Jesus is. So I thought, well, maybe I could start volunteering somewhere. Maybe I could change my work situation. Maybe I could go stand on a street corner and start talking to random strangers there, and that sounded miserable. To anyone who's willing to do that, God bless them, that's not me. I'm an introvert, and I really don't like small talk that much there. Um, really, as well, kind of small talk that is just out of the blue. And then we got to the situation where last fall, my wife and I, we needed to get a new car. And so we ended up getting this, this new car, and I started thinking, well, what if I maybe start driving for a lift. I mean, we can bring in a little extra income. And it also gives me this avenue to meet people that I probably would never have met in my life there. And so I was praying about it, discussing it, hesitant to actually do that there, because as an introvert, again, don't really like talking to a whole lot of people there. But this kind of conviction kept coming back into my heart to say, if I really want to see the kingdom of God thrive in the city of Seattle, I can't just sit back in my home on my laptop day to day. And so I took the plunge there. And in many ways, as I've been driving for the last couple months, God has actually kind of blessed that time. It's allowed me to hear different viewpoints, different perspectives. And that's not in every conversation, 
I would say most conversations is that kind of stereotypical. If you've ever driven in like a Lyft or an Uber, it's, hey, where are you going? Great. How long have you been driving for Lyft? This long. It's raining again in Seattle. Can't wait for spring. Oh, we're here at your destination. <laughs> have a great day. That's what most of the conversations go like there. But every so often, and I don't know like what sparks these people to hop in the car and just start sharing their hearts and just opening up and really treating me like that stereotypical bartender where they're like, I'm never going to see this person again. Let me tell, tell you everything that is going wrong in my life. And those are actually the conversations that I really enjoy because they start to get a little bit more real. They get past just the common niceties and actually start to show a little bit what their heart is. And it gives this opportunity to actually start to open the door to hear, well, what's led to this? And how has the, how has your views on religion, God, influenced where you're at today? It's weird. It's surprising. You think that people may be uncomfortable sharing those things there. But in Seattle, there's, it's actually pretty common that people have at least had some experience with the church, God, a faith system there. Just a couple years back, Seattle was actually named the number two most de-churched city in the nation. And what that means is that out of all the major cities in the U.S., we had the second highest percentage of people who had been a part of a church community or religious community and said, I don't want to do that anymore. And it's interesting, again, that people are actually pretty comfortable sharing those stories. And as I've been kind of having those conversations with people, I'm fascinated to hear what led them to this place where they said, I want to give up on this. And it honestly comes down to there's this one common theme that comes up. And it's something that goes along like this. I used to be a part of a church community. I started realizing life was short. And I started questioning to myself, is this all worth it? And as I was preparing for today's message, that was something that kept coming back into my heart over and over again, these conversations. And I think part of the reason that I felt so drawn to these conversations and so fascinated by them is that question, is it worth it? It's something that I ask myself. That when you look at the news and you see some of the atrocities that are happening in the world, or you see some of the failures that are happening um, in the church there, it's easy to ask yourself, is it worth it? And I started kind of wrestling with this, and I started to realize, if this is something that the city of Seattle has struggled with, if this is something that I've wrestled with, I'm going to guess that there are a number of people here at Sedaris who have wrestled with this question. Is all of this worth it? Whether you have been in church all your life, maybe you have been with Sedaris since the beginning, since it was planted, and have served over and over again. Maybe this is your first time here, and you saw a flyer, or you had a friend say, hey, you could come check this out, and you're saying, I have no idea why I'm here. 
I'm guessing there are plenty of people who have wrestled with this question, is it worth it? And that's the question that we are going to dive in today as we dive into Mark chapter 11. Because I strongly believe that in Mark 11, we are going to see that Mark make the claim that yes, it is worth it. Because what we're going to see in Mark 11 is that Mark is going to show to us that in Jesus, we find a king who is worthy of being followed, even in moments of suffering and uncertainty. I want to repeat that again because I think it's so important. It's going to be the whole point of the rest of our, today's conversation is that main point. In Jesus, we find a king who is worthy of being followed even in times of suffering and uncertainty. So if you have a Bible, you can open to Mark chapter 11. You can Google it on your phone. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the end of the aisles there. Um, You can grab it, have someone pass it down. That's our gift to you at Sedaris as well. Please take it with you. We want you to have a Bible so that you can read and kind of wrestle with these things on your own as well. And kind of as you're turning there, I I just want to give kind of a little bit of catch-up because we're wrestling with this question, is it worth it? And we're going to Mark. And for us to really kind of rely on this, we need to know a little bit about kind of why this is here. So a little bit of a background. The Gospel of Mark is one of 66 books in the Bible, and it's really structured to answer this question, who is Jesus? And the Gospel of Mark came about because after Jesus' ministry, after his life, death, and resurrection, the church started moving forward. His disciples, his followers, the eyewitnesses of the events that, that Jesus had done started sharing with others about what they had seen. And the church grew. It went from Israel, it went to Europe, it went to, into Asia, it went into North Africa. And as the church began to grow, the eyewitnesses started to get older The political climate started to change. And the leaders of the church started to think, we're not going to be around forever. We need to write this stuff down so that future generations know what we have seen and can answer this question, who is Jesus? And so what we see in the Gospel of Mark is we're actually reading the account of Peter. So Peter was one of the 12 disciples, one of the closest followers of Jesus there. And he, at the in around uh, 64 AD, he, his ministry has taken him to, him to Rome, and he's got this companion, Mark, and just the life situation that he's found himself in, and he recognizes that the, the political climate is changing and growing more hostile to this growing Christian faith. He recognizes, I'm not going to be here. I want people to answer this question, who is Jesus, accurately. And so, That's the question that Mark is writing down. He's taken all these stories that Peter has shared with him so that future generations can read this and go, who is Jesus? And that's the question that if if you're first time here or if you've been kind of in and out during the series that we have titled the most important question, who is Jesus? And in Mark 11, what we see is kind of a, a unique transition because it starts to become the culmination to the answer of this question. And the first part... Uh, the answer that Mark is trying to say is Jesus is a king. 
And so for the first 10 chapters, we've seen him performing miracles, we've seen teaching, we've seen him cast out demons there, but now we're going to see that Mark wants to illustrate all of this has been building to this point where Jesus is going to proclaim himself as king. And so we're going to dive into the first 11 verses here, and we're going to see how that works there. So Mark chapter 11 says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those who standing there said to him, what are you doing untying this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And we looked around at everything as it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. So here what we're going to see in this, this first section is Mark is identifying Jesus as a king in three different ways. So we're going to look at those three first. So the first thing that we see is in verse 3. As Jesus is sending his disciples to go gather this animal, he says, hey, if anyone questions you, tell them that the Lord has need of it. Now, for those familiar with the faith, familiar with Jesus, we kind of recognize Jesus. It's common to refer to him as the Lord in our worship and the way we communicate. Lord is a common title for Jesus. But if you've been following along, or if you go back and read the first 10 chapters of Mark there, what you see is that Jesus has actually been really hesitant to make any proclamation about his identity. He'll go and do these miracles, or he'll go and cast out demons, and one of the things that Mark commonly writes is something along the lines is, he charged them to tell no one. It's kind of this weird theme of Mark is that as Jesus is going through his ministry, he's really hesitant to kind of make a big proclamation about himself so that when we come into Mark chapter 11, we come across this statement where Jesus is saying, we'll now tell them that the Lord has need of it. It's actually a big shift in how Jesus is acting and speaking of who he is. And as readers, what, it's to, what Mark is trying to tell us is he's trying to tell us, like, pay attention to what is happening. All of this has been building to this moment that's about to come. And now Jesus is willing for people to know him as a Lord, a master, as one who has authority. That wasn't necessarily the, how he referred to himself before him. But now as he's entering into Jerusalem, the heart of what was the kingdom of Israel... He wants people to know that one with authority is coming. Mark is trying to illustrate to us as readers the beginning of his theme that this one with authority is going to be a king. 
So number two, the second way that Mark tries to illustrate that Jesus is a king to us is this cult. Now you may be wondering, okay, he's riding in on this animal. If you read Matthew or other accounts of the Gospels, it's a donkey. In all honesty, it's not the most regal mode of transportation. It's a very humble form of, of riding in. And yet for Mark, he wants us to illustrate, know that this is actually a very kingly act. And for us to know that, we actually need to know a little bit of Israel's history. And we need to know a little bit of our Old Testament. Because about 500 years before, the tribe of Judah and the nation of Israel had been in exile. Uh, and they've come back from exile. The Lord has delivered them back into their land. And the temple has been destroyed. And they're rebuilding it. And yet there's this, there's this discouragement amongst all the people. And so God comes to them. And he, goes, and he, he sends this prophet, Zechariah, with a message. And so if you take a look back at Zechariah 9, I think it's going to be up on the screen here. This is a message that God sends to Zechariah uh, to tell to the nation of Israel. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And in this, this passage, what we see is that this king is one who is going to bring peace. This is one that is going to bring salvation. And when we understand this in regards to the actions that Jesus is doing, that Mark is sharing with us, Mark is trying to show to us that Jesus is this king of promise. That when we read the gospel of Mark, that we can understand that Jesus is fulfilling a promise that has been 500 years in the making. That's the second way that Mark tries to share with us that Jesus is in fact a king. So the third way is kind of how people respond to it. So you may think, well, they're laying down their coats, there's these branches, all these things, that's a pretty cool thing that happened. Surprisingly, that's actually more common than you think. There was celebrations where that was a common thing to happen as pilgrims would come into Jerusalem and visit there. A lot of people would enter into that there. But what they say is very important. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This speaks to the hearts of the people who are there, this longing that they're saying, we need our king to come save us. It was a common saying there, but what Mark is trying to illustrate is saying, this heart, this desire that you have in your heart, that you've been waiting for this king, Jesus, the one entering on this humble colt, is the answer, is the one who's the answer to Hosanna. Hosanna means, please save us the act of a king to save his people. 
the one who is going to bring the coming kingdom of our father, David. Mark really wants us to understand this point as readers, that Jesus is, in fact, a king. Now, we can stop there. You're like, okay, he's a king, great. But that doesn't really tell us a whole lot about the character of Jesus. Because I said, Jesus is a king, but he's also a king worth following. And the good news is, Mark doesn't stop his story there either. So Jesus walks, goes through this entrance, and the first thing he does, after trying to make kind of this statement of who he is, is he walks into the temple, looks around, and says, all right, I'm out. I'm leaving. Goes out of the city. It's a very anticlimactic finish to this story. And the reason it's anticlimactic is because I don't think Mark wants us to stop, stop there. I think he wants us to continue into the next section. And I'll be honest, the next section is a little weird. There's some weird stuff happening, and so we're going to read through it, but then we're going to break it down. And in this next section, what we will see is we will see that Jesus is, in fact, actually a king worth following. So let's read. Verses 15 through 25. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, or, nope, on the following day, or a Actually, verse 12. So, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who brought a bot in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw that the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you had cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain... Be taken up and throw it into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. So it's a little weird passage. When I first kind of got this text and, and Dave asked me to preach this, I was like, what am I supposed to do with this fig tree? <laughs> Jesus, some sort of like anti-environmentalist and just wants to just mow everything over and just build highways and all of that there. No, that's not the case. Jesus seems a little angry. So how do we approach this? Well, the first thing we're going to tackle is this fig tree, because it's actually pretty simple what's happening here. Because when we read the Old Testament, what you'll find is the fig tree 
is actually commonly used as a symbol for Israel. You see it in the prophet Jeremiah, you see it in Hosea, you see it in Joel, that a fig tree is used as a symbol for Israel so that when we're coming into this section and we're reading about it, Jesus isn't upset at this fig tree. I mean, Mark goes out of his way who tells us that it's not the season for figs. Jesus wasn't anticipating finding any figs on this tree because it's not the season for it. But when we start to recognize that this is actually a symbol for Israel, what we start to see is the dissatisfaction that Jesus has is he's dissatisfied with, which, with what is occurring in his kingdom and in the people of God. You see, Mark intentionally structures and breaks up this story and surrounds it around this, this story that's happening in the temple to draw our eyes to it, to say, hey, what's going on with this fig tree is directly related to what is happening in the temple of God and in the kingdom of God. And so here we're going to see four ways Jesus' response to a broken kingdom is going to illustrate to us why he is a king that is worth following. The first one is Jesus is a king for all nations. So Jesus walks into the temple, starts clearing things out, and he starts teaching people. And the first thing he says to him, them is, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? You see, the events that are happening here are taking place in the outer court of the temple. So the temple was structured in a way where there was different courts, and the closer you got in, different people were allowed to go in. So you had the priests who could go in really closely, you had Israel who'd go in a little bit closer. You had the women who could go in. And on the outside was a place for people who were not a part of the nation of Israel to come into and worship God. And yet, Israel has always kind of had this elitism. They've always kind of thought themselves, hey, we are the chosen people of God. God spoke to our father Abraham. He said he's going to bless us. So that means we're kind of elite because God has chosen us. They ignore the fact that in the promise to Abraham, their forefather that they are claiming to follow, is that God says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all nations. Because our king that we are to follow, is a king for all nations. Jesus wants to proclaim that. He wants people to know that I am here so that everyone can come into the presence of God. If you've ever felt like an outsider, this proclamation of our king saying, I am a king for all nations, my hope is it draws you closer to him. The second reason that we see that Jesus is a king worth following is Jesus is a king of restorative justice. You see, Jesus has come in and he's teaching and he's proclaiming these things. 
and he's speaking out to the injustice that is happening in, in his temple. And he doesn't stop there. He takes action to cleanse it. What he does is he comes in and he starts driving out those who are selling, who are doing commerce, who are preventing people from being able to come into the presence of God. He's outraged by the fact that the actions of the people of God are preventing others from coming into his presence, and he takes action because he has a heart for justice. He has a heart for those who are forced out on the outside to be able to come into the presence of God. And honestly, as I was reading this, and I was reading kind of the actions of the priests and the actions of the leaders of the temple, something was really heavy on my heart. And I want to pause a little bit, kind of focus on this area, because because I know that there are people here who have been hurt by the church. Maybe you've been part of a church split. Maybe you've seen leadership of a church fail. Maybe you had a mentor or someone you admired who was a leader who fell into sin and walked away. Maybe you've had someone who sinned against you and you've been a victim to an atrocity and that person was a representative of what it meant to be a Christian and did something terrible. The church is a broken place and it's heartbreaking when the church stands in a place that prevents people from seeing who Jesus is. It's common to ask this question, is this worth it, when we see the church fail? Is Jesus really a a king worthy of following? Is it worthy to give my time, my investments, to be on this journey to try and pursue him? Because what I've seen has caused me a lot of hurt. What I've seen has caused me a lot of pain. And I don't know if it's worth it. And my hope is that as you read this, what you can see is that Jesus is outraged at what has happened to you. When the people of God act in a way that prevents individuals from coming into his presence, it is heartbreaking and devastating to him. And he is one who takes actions because he cares so deeply about you that he wants to see you in his presence. He is a king who wants that relationship for you. And my hope is today that if you've gone through that experience, if you've been hurt by the church, if you've been hurt by some leader, that you can, get, you can see that the heart of Jesus is so much bigger than that. He's outraged by that, he's heartbroken by it, and he's one who takes actions to restore that relationship. The fact that you are here today, even through that hurt, even through that pain, is a testament that Jesus is trying to reach out to your heart and say, yes, it's worth it. This is the heart of a good king. 
one who doesn't let injustices stand, but one who takes action. Now, there's also the flip side of that coin. Some of us may have been victim or part of, of, of sin of the church. Some of us may have been the instigators of that. You may be sitting there, well, what does this mean for me? Because Jesus seems pretty outraged. He seems pretty upset with what's going on. What does it mean for me? I've sinned. I have shame. I'm, what am I to do with this there? And for that, the answer is that we have our third point. Is Jesus a king worth following? The answer is yes. Because we have a king who desires mercy and desires to establish a culture of grace and forgiveness. And in this passage, it's actually really easy to miss. Because in verse 17, what we see... um, After he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. Mark doesn't give a lot of detail in his accounts and stories, and so when he does, there's a pretty big purpose of why he's recording what he's recording. And for us to actually understand how this relates to a merciful God, we actually need to understand the story of Israel a little bit further. Because this statement actually held a lot of weight. This is a a citing from Jeremiah. And what's happening in the book of Jeremiah is that Israel, nation of Judah, is finding themselves in exile because of their sin. And Jeremiah is speaking the word of God, and he's he's telling them, the temple is going to be destroyed because of your Actions, your injustices, your sins, and your failures. It's what you deserve. So when we see Jesus citing this, what he's actually saying to the people of the church or the people of the temple, you're no different than you were 500 years ago. You're no different from your forefathers who were faithless who were fruitless, who were the fig trees that failed to give and bear fruit. You're no different. What you deserve is you deserve to be in exile. That's the proclamation that Jesus is crying out to them. But here's the thing. Here's what we've already seen in this passage that Mark is trying to to share with us, and it's extraordinarily beautiful. Because what happened in the entry? Jesus rode in on a colt. Jesus is fulfilling a promise to the same people who were in exile. In Zechariah, we see them post-exile. And we see the promise that this king is coming, this king is going to bring salvation, this king is going to bring peace. And Mark has already established that that is the norm and that is the truth of where these people are going to find themselves in. So even though these people deserve, it deserve exile, the picture we see in Mark is they have a king who is going to bring salvation and peace. That is the heart 
of the gospel. A group of people who deserve punishment, who deserve exile, because they have twisted and tormented the word of God and have brought injustices, and yet God's response to them is, I am providing you with a king who will bring you peace and justice. Two major ways that God is speaking to people is he's speaking to the people who have been victim and said, you will receive justice. He has been, he's speaking to the people who have brought injustice and said, I will forgive you and bring peace. And we see that exemplified at the end of this passage in verse 25 when he's instructing his disciples. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The heart of our king is one who desires to establish a culture of forgiveness and grace. That's the king that we follow. So the fourth and final way, though, that Jesus is a king worth following, is he is a king who shakes up the status quo so that people can have direct relationship with their king. So the temple was a place that people came so they, they could experience the presence of God, that they could find restoration. And what we see is when Jesus comes in, he speaks this, this statement of, you have made my house a den of robbers. The scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders of the temple respond harshly to that. And they should, because the context of that is a reminder that the last time that was spoken by God was before the temple was destroyed. And what Jesus is trying to illustrate to them here is saying, there's going to be a better way. Jesus in himself ends up being the ultimate temple. He ends up being the ultimate priest. And so that individuals can come into his presence. At the end of this passage, uh, we see the encouragement to pray. He invites his disciples to experience the presence of God, not in the temple, but wherever they may be. And honestly, it's outrageous. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. I don't know how to deal with that. In all honesty, to know that I have a king who desires a relationship so much with me that I can come into his presence and make any request and he desires to bring blessing? I don't know how to do with it, deal with that. My wife was reading this passage a couple weeks ago and she was like, what do you do with this? I don't know. I don't live like I believe this. There, I should. But in all honesty, like I don't. An example of that was this last December, my wife and I flew down to my in-laws there. They have a Christmas party they, they do every year, and they wanted us to be a part of it. So we go down there, and we're helping to set up. And um, my mother-in-law is like, hey, Ben, can you come help me find some stuff in the storage shed? So we go down there, and we're kind of gathering stuff, and we're looking for this punch bowl. We're looking for it for like 20 minutes. 
We've looked at every shelf. We've kind of dug through stuff. Can't buy it. And all of a sudden, my mother-in-law goes, hey, we should pray about this. And so my response is, okay. But inside, in my mind, I'm going, that's not going to do anything. But sure. So we pray. And as soon as we say amen, we're like, okay, well, let's keep looking. My mother-in-law goes, what's that box up there? She pulls down this box. It's the Christmas punch bowl. I felt so humbled. And the irony is even more so was just a couple weeks beforehand, I was actually discussing a book about prayer with some people from Sedaris where a very similar event happens where the author is talking about like, hey, we're trying to find this contact lens. Let's pray for it. And because God desires for even the littlest things, he wants a relationship for us. So they pray for it and they find this contact lens. And I was like sharing with people like, that's super convicting. And then here two weeks later, later, pretty much the exact same situation, except instead of a contact lens, it was a punch bowl. And I'm sitting there and my heart going, this is worthless. This isn't going to do anything. And yet God desires a relationship so much that he actually hears us. He wants us to be in relationship with him. That is the heart of a good king. So four ways that Jesus is a king worth following. First, he is a king of all nations. Second, he's a king who brings restorative justice. Third, he's a king who desires to give mercy and establish a culture of forgiveness and grace. And fourth, he is one who shakes the status quo so that we can come into his presence and experience a relationship with him. Jesus is a king worth following. Now, the last point I want to make today, I said at the very beginning, our main point was Jesus is a king worth following, but he's also a king worth following in times of suffering, in times of uncertainty. And you may be wondering, where's that in this passage? How do you get there? And for us to understand that, we need to understand who Mark is writing to. So the book of Mark, again, story of Peter taking place in Rome around 64, 65, 66 A.D. What happens in Rome in 64 A.D.? It's a great fire. Devastates the city, the heart of the biggest empire in the world. And the response of the people of Rome is to blame the emperor Nero. And in his response, he's going, I need a scapegoat. I can't this look bad, have this look bad on me. So he starts blaming the Christians. And it starts one of the earliest and greatest persecutions in the church history. And so Christians are being executed. They're being crucified. And here we have Mark writing this story to say, I know there's a king and an emperor out there who is executing people who are following Jesus. But here is a king worth following. All of us are going to experience uncertainty. 
All of us are going to experience trials. We may be in a good time now. You may have situations that you're struggling with and you're silently suffering. And Mark is writing this so that future generations can answer, who is Jesus? He is a king that is worthy of being followed even when you're experiencing and witnessing the greatest atrocities and suffering. And this is exemplified even more because Mark's story of a king doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop with him riding into the city of Jerusalem, riding into what was the, the center of the kingdom that people were expecting the king to come to. Instead, what we see Spoiler alert for the next few weeks. Is that this king, what it means for him to be a king, is that he's going to suffer himself. That in less than a week's time, he's going to find himself nailed to a cross, crucified. Mark wants us to know, is Jesus a king worth following? Yes, because he is a king who has suffered as well. He understands what it means to suffer. He knows the trials that we experience it because he's faced it himself. But even more so, is Mark doesn't stop with the suffering. Mark stops his story actually pretty abruptly with an empty tomb. And what he wants his readers to know, be challenged is we've seen a king who has suffered, but we have seen a king who has conquered that suffering. And that empty tomb represents that. So that wherever we're, whatever situation we're in, whatever trials we're facing, that we can stand and look at a king and say, I have a king who has suffered, who has died, and if I follow him, He's not going to lead me to death. Instead, what he has the ability to do, and with the king that I have, is one who's not going to lead me to death, but rather has the ability to lead me through it. Is Jesus a king worth following? That's what Mark wants us to ask. In all honesty, That's a decision and answer I can't give to you. That's something you need to decide for yourself. Whether you're a non-Christian and it's kind of something you're exploring, is this a picture of a king that's worthy of starting to follow? Maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but the initial excitement and enthusiasm is gone. It's just kind of day-to-day, and you're going... Man, there's a lot of things going on in this world. Maybe you're like those people who get in my car and say, life is short and I just didn't think it was worth it. Ask yourself, is this portrait of a king worth following? Is it worth it? And for those of you who are suffering, 
is the picture of a king who has suffered so that he can understand your suffering but can lead you through it? Is that a picture of a king worth following? Is it worth it? We have a king who desires to bring justice. We have a king who desires to bring forgiveness and grace. We have a king who has suffered. And we have to decide, is that a king worth following? No one can make that decision for you. Something that you're going to have to decide for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the mission of Jesus. That you have given us a a king that desires to not just sit back and watch his kingdom, but a king who desires to step into his kingdom and pursue his people so that they can find healing and grace. Lord, I pray for those who are wrestling with this question, is following Jesus worth it? I pray that you allow the Holy Spirit to kindle a fire in their heart, to feel again what it means to follow you, that pleasure that we can find in having a king who loves us. May this word be an encouragement to them today that we have a king who has done so much for us. In your name, amen.